Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Eddie Gutierrez, MD. Uh, He's a critical care specialist at Baptist Medical Center in Jacksonville, Florida. And we're going to talk about um, a new treatment method for COVID. So, Eddie, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Well, tell me, what's what's been your involvement with COVID from the start? And, uh, you know, how did it morph into you discovering or running across this uh, potential therapy? Well, it's it's kind of been a whirlwind. It's kind of uh, coming to think about it. We've already been in this bottle for over a year now, at least since it hit Florida, which is which is where I'm at. And, you know, it's something that caught us completely by surprise because we we in critical care stay up with the latest evidence, the latest technologies, the latest innovations in order to take the best care of our patients possible. And to see that People in China and Wuhan in particular, where where it first started, they were coming out with case reports and literature about patients with this uh, respiratory disease that didn't behave like any other disease that we've taken care of in the past, to be quite frank with you, and to see what the clinical manifestations of that was and how those physicians, nurses, et cetera, all struggled to care for these patients and ended up having such a high mortality once patients got sick enough to need ICU level of care. I mean, it was, it was quite shocking to us because again, we, we try to stay on the, on the cutting edge of everything. And, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a whirlwind because we've been seeing how 
we've used technologies that we currently have had for the last decade or so and, and applied it to these patients who have COVID, especially those who have the, these, this ARDS type picture. And for those who are, who are un, unaware of what ARDS is, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and it's basically in layman's terms, a significant amount of inflammation throughout the entire parenchyma of the lung. And that makes it hard to deliver oxygen into the patient. And therefore, the conventional therapy, which, you know, was a topic of media and uh, political strife to some degree, was this question of whether we were going to have enough ventilators to provide oxygen to these patients and respiratory support to these patients who who would eventually develop COVID to such a severe degree as to where they would need our care in the intensive care unit. And so it's been quite challenging to care for these patients, but at the same time, we've had a couple of tools in our tool belt that we have, to a certain extent, uh, changed the indications, so to speak, and prolonged the indications and added new evidence as to how we could use different technologies to better care for these patients and therefore improve outcomes. Yeah, I haven't heard very much about um, ventilators since the start of the pandemic, but um, you know, you being in critical care, you've seen the usage of them. Did they peak for a while and then went, you know, like tailed off or what's been the use throughout the entire year? So it's, it's a very good question because at first there was this whole concern about the aerosolization of the virus. In other words, to make a, make a virus that's supposed to be droplet in theory, but in reality, we know that there is some sort of aerosol component to it now, but at first we were unsure of what component it was to begin with. And therefore we have other technologies of, the, of providing oxygen to patients um, that come before using the ventilator. At first, we thought that devices such as the one that I use in my institution, which is the Airvo 2 by Fisher and Paykel, they were there was this thought process that these devices cause more aerosolization of the virus itself. So even though it could help out the patients, the fear was that we were going to get ourselves, being the medical staff, and other people in the hospital sick, because again, we would be propagating the virus. But data has shown that this is actually not the case. And that being said, this, this particular type of technology, the high flow nasal cannula, actually disperses and aerosolizes the virus far less than a conventional nasal cannula that, you know, the ones that you see on TV all the time, or even this type of uh, mask called BiPAP or CPAP, which, which is a mask that encases the entire face of the patient even those devices go ahead and aerosolize the virus more so than the high flow nasal cannula. And so the, the paradigm shift that, has ex- that, that existed, especially early on, was the fact that we noted that we did not have sufficient ventilators for everybody who was going to need it. And therefore, we mitigated this, process, this problem by going ahead and using high flow nasal cannula on our patients with COVID-19. Obviously, there are going to be patients who end up needing the ventilator. ventilator. There's no doubt about that. But using a ventilator comes with a lot, a lot of problems. I mean, again, is... One quick question here. Um, yeah. If you're on a ventilator, I heard that they put you on paralytics and you're essentially mm-hmm. comatose and at the mercy of all this equipment. But with your high-flow cannula, what's, it, what's the difference in the two treatments? Oh, absolutely. So... You know, and, and I'm not going to say that the high flow nasal cannula fixes everything, but you could keep a significant amount of people off of the ventilator. And certain data that has come out has says that you could keep between 60 and 70 percent of patients who historically would need a ventilator. You could keep them off u- utilizing this technology. 
But the reasons why the ventilator could go ahead and cause issues to our patients who have COVID is, first of all, putting patients on the ventilator is not a benign procedure at all. There are issues with actually putting people on the ventilator with the, with the whole intubation. People who need a ventilator, they are so oxygen deprived, their oxygen levels in their blood are so low that in order to put them on a ventilator, you have to give them general anesthesia. And when you do so, you stop their respiratory drive and therefore they're not breathing by them for themselves. They're not bringing in oxygen. They're not exhaling out carbon dioxide. And that could cause their blood levels, excuse me, their blood oxygen levels to drop even further. Then with the ventilator, you have trauma that you could cause because of the device itself. You know, you're, you're basically pushing pressure into the patient's lungs. And we have methods to go ahead and try to do this as safely as possible. But what we have learned is that in patients who have COVID, their lungs are extremely stiff. They're basically like concrete. And so it's really hard to get the oxygen in and to get the volumes that you and I breathe normally on our own to try to force this air into these patients' chests. It just becomes pretty challenging. And then you have things such as barotrauma and ventilator-induced lung injury. And then, like you mentioned yourself, there are issues with sedation of patients who have COVID because they require far higher doses of sedative medications than what we conventionally use to at least keep them from fighting the vent. Because as they fight the ventilator, you have issues with that. And in addition to that, you also have to paralyze some people to be able to prone them, which means to flip them on their bellies so that they could open up their lungs more and help the ventilator work better. And so you have that particular strategy, which was the initial strategy that was used in places such as Wuhan and New York initially. But as we've been going along and learning more about how we could prevent people needing the mechanical, needing mechanical ventilation, we've been using the high-flow nasal cannula therapy, which I know that this is a podcast and, and the audience can't see, but it's basically a more robust nasal cannula that goes over the face of the patient. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And it just has two nasal prongs and it develops, it delivers oxygen in a far higher flow than a conventional nasal cannula. And so what that allows to do what allows the patient to do from a comfort perspective is that even though they're receiving high doses of oxygen and high concentration of oxygen at a high flow, these patients are fortunately still able to eat food, which is very important, chat on FaceTime with their families and with their friends. And even in the case of, for example, the devices that I have at my institution, again, the Aerobo 2, patients could even ambulate inside their room because the they can walk around inside the room because there's a battery pack that goes onto the device and they can basically wow. walk around with that, with that particular pole. So this is not, much better than laying in a bed and accumulating all kinds of bacteria and you're, you're not moving and you're not, um, you know, moving your tissues around. I mean, it seems to be a thousand times better. 
Oh, no, no doubt about it. We have gone to an extent on trying to avoid putting patients on ventilators because we know what the outcomes are. There, there's, there are the statistical data that has, that has been published from, you know, big fancy institutions. And then there's the real world data, which is the one that we're all seeing at our, at our own respective institutions. And the mortality for people who are on mechanical ventilation is, is in excess of 50%. And so when you take that into account and patients know that coming into the hospital, I mean, once, once they're sitting there, they're looking up what their odds are on Google, online, et cetera, and they don't want to go on a ventilator. And so we've had other strategies to augment the effect of the high flow nasal cannula system. Like for example, patients will go ahead and prone themselves in the bed and, you know, lay with their, lay with an iPad or a tablet in front of their faces, you know, on their bellies and watch TV and they'll see their oxygen levels go up because they, they become very much in tune with the methods that we're using to take care of them and what we're watching ourselves. For example, we're watching the parameters of their respiratory rate, what their oxygen levels are in their blood, and they're, they're very involved with their case. And uh, all that considered, they, they definitely rather stay on the high flow nasal cannula system than even bring up the word intubation. How much is this used in... You know, how long you've been using it and do a lot of other people use it? Did you get pushback for using it? No, I, I thankfully do not get any pushback for using it. I personally have been using the technology since about 2013 or 2014 when the institution where I did my residency training in Savannah, Georgia, when they started using the device, I, I immediately started reading up about it and le- learning about the technology. I uh, also found it extremely, extremely useful from a clinical standpoint in taking care of patients, not only those patients who, you know, now we hear about it with COVID, but the reality is that this, this technology has been beneficial already since 2012, 2013 or so, when it became more widespread. What actually, what actually laid the groundwork for utilizing this technology on a more, on a more broad scope was in 2015. In the New England Journal of Medicine, there was a trial that was published where they randomized patients to get patients who had, I won't say similar lung pathology to COVID, but they did also have ARDS and they also had pneumonia. And so they randomized patients to either use a regular nasal cannula or conventional oxygen therapy or the mask that I described earlier or the high flow nasal cannula system. And what they found is that in the subset of patients who required the most oxygen, the subset of patients who were the most sick, there were fewer patients who required the utilization of mechanical ventilation in the group of patients who had the high flow nasal cannula system on compared to the other two. And then they also had less mortality in that group. They had a shorter length of stay in the hospital because of that, because of that technology. And so after that was published in 2015, this became more widespread. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. The problem is that it's always hard to translate these, these great data that, that come out of these journals and this great work that, for example, was published by the, this team out in France to actually get into the lay, lay public, to the community, and, and into the medical community. Because, you know, we, we tend to get comfortable with what we have to a certain degree and, and not want to go ahead and, and reach out. But one of the beautiful things that happened with COVID out of all the bad things that happened, we, you know, you always have to look on the bright side, is the way that the medical community has come together and, you know, basically used experience 
people talking, like, you know, me discussing things on podcasts, YouTube, et cetera, to where people are learning faster because they want to treat as many patients as they can, as, as well as they can, while decreasing, you know, like I said before, the risk of intubation. And so once everybody started becoming more comfortable with the thought of not aerosolizing the virus, like I mentioned before, the use of high flow nasal cannula is, has, has exploded within the critical care field and even, you know, uh, hospital medicine doctors who are usually the ones who admit the patients to the hospital, as well as emergency medicine doctors, they're now reaching for it immediately to help take care of their patients. That's good. That's much better. You mentioned a few times that virus can be aerosolized. Why, how does that affect someone if they have a regular cannula or a ventilator? What is the virus, the expired, the exhaled breath, the virus in it is what volatilized and then it's rebreathed? Like what's the issue? Yeah. And so, so the issue is not necessarily that it's going to go ahead and recontaminate the patient itself, but more so the healthcare professional who's taking care of them, whether it be a nurse, pharmacist, a respiratory therapist, especially the nurses and respiratory therapists who are the ones who at the end of the day, to be completely honest, spend the most time with these patients me as a physician, I go in once a day, perhaps even twice to go ahead and assess the patient, see how they're doing. A lot of times I could just get away with seeing them through a window, but the nurses are in there the the vast majority of the day. And if this virus was actually aerosolized, it'll make it more, it'll make it more so that the nurse and the respiratory therapist could go, go ahead and get sick from the virus. If for example, they didn't have an N95. So thankfully now, you know, we, we all have proper PPE at the vast majority of our institutions. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about that too much, but at the beginning of the pandemic, when they were recommending surgical masks for people taking care of COVID, you know, it it could get kind of dicey. And then the other component to it being that we use a type of room called the negative pressure room, which will, which would go ahead and extract the virus out of the air. Should it be aerosolized immediately? Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, especially when you're talking about limited resources of rooms, beds, things of that nature, one of the things that has to, that that comes into the topic of conversation there is negative pressure rooms. So now, you know, most most institutions, I know, thankfully, my institution never really had a problem with that. So I heard, and a lot of people heard about ventilators. Ventilators again in the beginning of COVID. Haven't heard much lately. Why is that? Is that that because a lot of places are using this new high flow cannula or is it that just the number of patients requiring ventilation or this therapy has gone way down? Like, what's the reason? If one were to use the initial criteria that we were all trained for, you know, for example, I did a specialized two year critical care fellowship at Wake Forest. You are taught to go ahead and put people on the on the ventilator once they hit certain parameters. Right. Like if they require a certain amount of oxygen or uh, you know, they've been sick for a certain amount of time. You just go ahead and you pull the trigger on putting them on a ventilator. What we've learned with this with this particular device and, and through COVID, for example, is that you could keep these patients on this type of support for a far longer period of time. And just to give you an example, let's say 20 years ago, when you had to give a patient supplemental oxygen, you had the traditional nasal cannula and you had you had a couple other devices that didn't, didn't provide as much FiO2 being as much oxygen, and it also did not provide as much flow. And then outside of those particular devices, you also had the non-invasive device, which we commonly call BiPAP and CPAP, which is a full face mask. The thing is that when you're on BiPAP and CPAP, that technology that was used, for example, 20 years ago, 
patients were unable to communicate with the physicians, with their loved ones, and they weren't able to eat because it, it basically is a mask that goes over a patient's face entirely. And so that was a limitation. You know, you, you could have a patient on that particular device for six hours, eight hours. You could try to give the patient a break, a break so that they can have a quick snack. And then you have to go on and slam that mask back on their face. But what happens with the high flow nasal cannula, since it's only a cannula that goes over the patient's nose, uh, you know, the nasal prongs go into the patient's nostrils, that patient is free to eat and drink. And so you don't have to worry about somebody becoming not only on top of the fact that they're burning a ton of calories because they're, they're working through this entire illness and, you know, they're breathing a little bit on the fast side, but, you know, they're, they're also now able to eat and drink and, and communicate with you. And so it, it's definitely been beneficial. Where Well, it's tremendous mental benefits too. Like I've been in the hospital. I don't want to have to be stuck in the bed. You know, I want to, I'm, I'm one of those people I want to get up and get out. And, you know, when I was in the hospital once, my wife brought me like regular clothes to wear, you know, regular shirts that were loose. Oh, yeah. And just by changing my clothes and sitting up and walking around and going outside, I felt a million times better. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a game changer because w- one of the things I try to do when, as, as a critical care doctor, as, as best as I could, obviously, because I have to have, for example, electrodes on my patient's chest and things like that is, is, is just humanize the whole experience for them. And to be honest with you, in the treatment of COVID, there's once somebody gets into the ICU and, for example, let's say that they're on high flow, what, what I spend most, the majority of my time doing with the patients in the intensive care unit who are just on the devices, I sit down with them. I put on my N95, I put on all my PPE, and I just sit down with them and chat with them, get to know them a little bit because these patients are on high flow nasal cannula for days and even weeks at some point. And, you know, it, it becomes this this relationship where you're just talking to the person about what their cat's name is and what their dog's name is and what they used to do for a living or what they do for a living. And, you know, and it, it just becomes that type of relationship because again, they're on the high nasal cannula, they're comfortable, they're able to do all their, all their activities. They're just, they're just in a hospital bed and they can't go anywhere else because, you know, people at home don't have access to that much oxygen because that's another reality. All these, all these patients just require so much oxygen to keep them alive. And, and eventually, and thankfully for the vast majority of them, the whole inflammatory process of COVID subsides to a certain degree and, and then they're able to go home. So what, what's the survival rate of ventilators versus this high flow cannula system? Well, see, that's where that's where the statistics become a little bit tricky because, you know, not everybody does well on the high flow nasal cannula system. Right. And um, some people do go on to deteriorate further to the point where they need to be put on a ventilator. I, I will say that I personally have not put somebody directly on a ventilator without trying the high flow nasal cannula system first. That's just because because, again, my. I want to go ahead and avoid putting patients on a ventilator. I obviously want to avoid doing it safely because there's also a problem with delaying intubation that also causes increased risk of death. There was well, reason- I, know, uh, yeah. I know a lot of people say, oh, it's just anecdotal evidence, but I'm sure you've seen hundreds and thousands of anecdotal evidence. So again, just anecdotally, I know it's not like a, an actual clinical trial, but what have you seen is the uh, efficacy difference of this high flow cannula versus um, you know, ventilator? Well, the reality is that the vast majority of people who who are put on mechanical ventilation, they they unfortunately succumb to the virus and to the and to the disease. And I would say it's over fifty percent from from my experience. 
with the Hyphonians cannula system, it's, it's far less than that. I would say about 80% of people survive. But again, we have, to, we have to think about the fact that the patients who are on Hyphonians cannula are obviously less sick than the people who require intubation. So that, that kind of throws off those percentages to a certain degree. Yeah, but if the same person was, was going to go on a ventilator instead of, you know, like if this was another hospital and you weren't there and this wasn't so pervasive and it was early on, you know, how many of the people you see would have been on ventilators instead of the high flow nasal cannula? Oh, a lot. So you Right. So you kind of can't extrapolate. Let's say it's like yeah. a thousand people you've seen would have been on the ventilator, but you got them on the cannula instead. So if you if your rate of success is greater than 50 percent, then you can kind of impute that. You know, again, we're, we're not being precise here. There's a lot of disclaimers, but what does it look like, you know, generally, like how much more effective the nasal cannula is? Well, we, we, have, we have a good way to, to know that data, actually. And all we have to do is look back in time at the beginning of this pandemic of what happened in New York, unfortunately. And again, I, I, I sympathize for my colleagues over there because they just didn't have the luxury of the information that, you know, I had when the pandemic came to Florida just a couple of weeks later. But in New York, they weren't using these strategies because, again, they didn't have PPE and they were afraid that they were going to be making their healthcare workers sick. So what they were doing was after a certain after patients required a certain amount of oxygen, they just went ahead and put patients on a ventilator. And when they went ahead and published the data as to how many people died on the ventilator, that was an excess of 80% that when the medical community went ahead and read that information, all of our jaws collectively dropped saying, wow, that, that's, that's absurd. But at the same time, you know, at that time, they were doing the best with what they had. And, and again, I just sympathize that they had to watch so many people die because they couldn't use this technology. Well, did you speak to colleagues early on in the pandemic and advise them? Did you tell them about this or you, oh, you were yeah. just so, too busy yourself? No, no, no. What was no, the okay. response? This is, again, the beauty of, of what happened through social media, where, for example, on Facebook, there were different critical care groups where people were chiming in about things that they were trying, uh, things that they were investigating, things that they were studying, different interventions that they were that they were doing. You know, I have a I have large reach on, on social media myself personally on Instagram, where I have, I think, 60 something thousand followers. And it's it's a purely 100% uh, medical education channel. I mean, and, and I also do it on YouTube. And I went ahead and, and explained my perspective and other people did so as well. And through the great medical community that we have, we were able to start adopting ways of using high flow nasal cannula to avoid putting patients on the ventilator. So, I mean, I think, I think the concern of aerosolization pretty much went away, I would say around May. So the pandemic... Yeah, but, but did you know that the aerosolization from the high flow cannula was less than a ventilator or is it just less than a regular well, So So a ventilator really doesn't aerosolize because it's a closed circuit. But when you compare the aerosolization, you you would compare it to the non-invasive ventilation, which is, which is what we call BiPAP or CPAP. And so we, we, we basically figured it's all the same. And with regards to aerosolization, it's, it's really hard to actually standardize that because, and again, this is just one thinks that we have all these answers, right? But the reality is we don't. So when it comes to aerosolization, we only know about the aerosolization because we extrapolate data from, from using smoke on healthy people. And seeing like, you know, putting smoke through through healthy people's lungs and putting through different devices on their face and taking measurements from that. So we don't have any actual data where we've actually put virus into a person and seeing how much comes out. 
But that being said, just just teasing out that that little bit of information, we were able to say, hey, you know what? We need to start using this because at the same time, we we are already starting to get a little bit more PPE. We know that if we're wearing N95 masks in the hospital and goggles and we have the negative pressure rooms, even if we aerosolize the virus, who cares? We're protected. And you know, we, we have to put everything on a balance as to are we going to allow patients to die or are we going to take a simple risk ourselves? And you've seen it every day on the news during the whole pandemic, the healthcare workers, we, we trained for this, you know, this is awful. It's terrible, but we are the people, the nurses, the doctors, the respiratory therapists, the pharmacists who have the capacity to take care of these individuals. And so that's why so many of us stepped up to the plate to do the best we can to, to take care of these patients. And is there a risk that we would have gotten sick ourselves? Yes, absolutely. Some of us got sick ourselves, but, but it's what it takes to, to basically fulfill that duty and responsibility that we have as healthcare personnel to do the best for our fellow men and save as many lives as possible. Do you think that out of self-preservation and fear that much more people were put on ventilators when, even when the conditions were there, let's say in New York or other places, just to get out of that fear of self-preservation and trying to essentially mothball the person. Oh, I'll put this on them. Then there's not going to be any gases and aerosolization coming out of them. And I'm safer that way. Do you think that's a possibility? I mean, I, I, I would not rule it out again. I, I, I recall the first person who I put on a ventilator myself. And again, I've been doing this for years. I've intubated thousands of people over the course of my career and the first person who I intubated who had COVID, uh, I was a little bit uneasy about it. And it's it's just the name of the game. It's it's we are put in contact with a virus that at that point we did not know, we did not understand, we just knew it was killing a bunch of people in Wuhan. And then we were seeing what was happening in New York. You know, uh, I have friends who practice in New York, and they're calling me and they're saying, "Hey Eddie, just start preparing because this is this sucks." And, you know, we just did the best we can. But but did some people get put on the ventilator because we didn't want to aerosolize and get ourselves sick to some degree? I'm, I'm, I'm sure that was that was the case somewhere. Again, I don't want to speak for other people, but making the assumption, I think that that's very plausible. I don't think it happens at all now because we have, again, we have the proper equipment and we have, and we, and we know what are the repercussions of putting people on ventilators. Yeah, I got you. Positive, on a positive note, what what can your uh, high flow nasal cannula system be used for that wasn't thought of before? Is it now, now its use is obviously radically expanded because of COVID, but are there other knock on conditions or effects that it's it will be good for that weren't known about before? Well, the the, the main thing that noticing is that people are more comfortable with pe- with patients, and when I say people, uh, healthcare professionals are more comfortable with people being on high flow for longer periods of time than what they were before. Because previously, people were patients were on high flow for a couple of days, and then they say, "Oh, this is not working on this patient. Let's just go ahead and put them on a ventilator." When I would say about a year or two ago, I took care of a let's make it two years now, because again, a year we've already been in COVID. I took care of a sixty-something-year-old lady who was otherwise healthy, who developed the same pathology that you see in the same inflammatory pathology that you see in COVID, the ARDS that I mentioned earlier, but she developed it from influenza. And so this lady, otherwise healthy, she came in and she was requiring a lot of oxygen and her chest x- x-ray looked abysmal. 
And the ER doctor wanted to go ahead and put her on a ventilator. And I said, no, let's, let's not go down this route. Just give her to me. I'll take her to the ICU. I'll put her on high flow nasal cannula. Because again, at that point, the ER doctor was not familiar with what the high flow nasal cannula system was. So I just put the patient on high flow nasal cannula and I just kept an eye on her while she was in my ICU. Well, long story short is that this lady spent about a month and a half in my intensive care unit. I mean, she basically basically became an extension of the family simply because she did not, her lungs just did not turn the corner and she did not get better on us until eventually, thankfully she did. But the learning point there was every day that that patient was just sitting there, myself, as well as my partners, because again, I'm not going to pretend to know anything. I know everything. Excuse me. I, I ask for lots of second opinions, especially when you're treading on uh, water that has never been treaded before. But it's just asking ourselves, are, are we doing the right thing? Should, would she get better if we went ahead and put her on a, on a ventilator and all that? But the long story short is that that, that lady ended up going home um, after her hospitalization. She stayed in relatively good shape and, and she did okay. The difference is that should I have put her on a ventilator, for example, and again, she was there for about a month and a half. Should I have put her on a ventilator on day one? We usually start thinking about putting people, uh, putting in a tracheostomy, which is the with the hole in the neck where they get connected to the ventilator, usually between, between day 10 to 14 of hospitalization. So she, again, she took a month and a half to get better. By two weeks in, she would have had a hole in her neck. Then we would have had to put a feeding tube, a peg tube in her belly to give her nutrition. And then she would have gone to some sort of long-term hospital. And then she likely would have gone to a nursing home. Had I And, and again, this is uh, hindsight's 2020 here, but had I put her on a ventilator, I most likely would have destroyed the rest of her life versus now I recently received a picture from her primary care doctor that she's doing well, she's back to normal. And, you know, there were no, there were no repercussions negative, negatively from her hospitalization. That's cool. That's, that's what being a doctor is probably all about. That probably makes you feel really good. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's one of our big wins. I'll never forget about that, that lady. But I was able to see at that point, using this technology, how we were able to have a good outcome in that particular patient and others that, you know, have come thereafter by using high flow nasal cannula for a prolonged period of time. Hopefully, the way that we've been using it in, in COVID will allow for other clinicians as well to see that, hey, you know what, you don't have to say, oh, this patient failed just because of, you know, they, they just haven't gotten better over X period of time, and therefore they need to be put on a ventilator. You can just give them more time, just watch the patient. There are different clinical, like clinical measurements that we do to make sure that we're not actually causing them any harm. And so... Uh, or that we're not delaying intubation because, again, that would be bad for the patient. But all in all, if, if we could keep people off of ventilators by using this technology, then, hey, so be it. Excellent. So looking forward, any uh, big events that you see are coming? Again, increased use of this uh, cannula. Are you going to speak about it? You know, do any tours or talk to other hospitals? Or like, what do you think is going to happen in the next year or two with this technology? Well, thankfully, there's there's been a lot of awareness that has taken place. Um, I do I I'm on a lecture circuit, and so I I do webinars. Um, I've done a couple webinars over the past couple of months. In addition to that, like uh, I, I speak about a number of different things in critical care medicine. Like for example, just two weeks ago, fortunate enough to be able to tra- uh, travel over to Vail, Colorado, where I gave a conference uh, speaking about a number of things in critical care again, but high flow nasal cannula and these types of therapies was definitely one of the topics that 
I, I speak much about because, again, I, I think it's very important for clinicians to know that this is accessible to them. It's way cheaper than a ventilator. <laughs> I'll say that. And, and patients are just very, very comfortable with it. When you say to the patient, hey, you're either going to have to use this high flow nasal cannula, which is uh, you know going to give the, you this high flow in, into your nose, or you can be put on a ventilator. 10 out of 10, choose the high flow nasal cannula system. Yeah. I think it could be used for sleep apnea. I know this is going outside your expertise, but you know, what's your gut feeling say about So there is a consideration for using this for sleep apnea. And the reason why is sleep apnea, the people you, you hear about CPAP, right? Like that's that's the technology that, that they yeah. use for, for CPAP. Well, the high flow nasal cannula system, what it does provide is that same type of pressure. So you get continuous positive airway pressure, but instead of through your, instead of through your, you know, your, your mouth and your nose with, with that little mask, instead, it's just these two nasal prongs. So the, the difference is that the amount of pressure currently available for the machine to deliver is not the same amount as one could get through the traditional mask. Through the, the traditional mask, you could get higher pressures, but I, I'm not familiar with the outpatient data of using the high nasal cannula system, or if there have been any studies, because that's outside of my scope of practice. I do not do any outpatient medicine, but I, again, I take care of a lot of patients who just went through uh, cardiopulmonary bypass surgery. And, um, and after their, after I get them off the ventilator immediately after their surgery, they get very sleepy. And so, you know, usually at home, they're on their CPAP mask to, to fall asleep. But instead, I just put them on the high flow nasal cannula system. I turn the flow all the way up and then I turn the oxygen level down and it creates a very similar effect. Again, that's my clinical practice. Um, I don't think that's, that's described anywhere, but the yeah. patients much rather have just a nasal cannula than a whole thing over their face, a whole, a whole mask set up over their face. Have you ever tried it to see the effects like put one on for a few minutes? Yeah, it's, it's extremely comfortable because part of the, part of the thing that makes this comfortable is the fact that the actual machine itself and, and the way that it delivers the oxygen is both heated and humidified. And so the, the heat and the humidity have a number of beneficial effects as to, for example, let's say, okay, you're in Austin, Texas. So, okay. A couple of weeks ago, when you, when you guys were freezing over, you went out, you stepped outside your house and you breathed yeah. in the cold air. And all of a sudden your lungs just kind of like stiffen up. You have some bronchoconstriction that takes place when you breathe in cold air. Well, with the high flow nasal cannula system, at least the, the Airbo 2 device, you could go ahead and calibrate the temperature, whether it's 31, 34, or 37 degrees Celsius. And so that actual heat makes it more comfortable for the patient to breathe in. And on top of that, the, the actual oxygen is humidified. And that allows the cilia, which, is, which are the lining of the lungs, to work properly, help patients bring up mucus, help break up the mucus, and help patients expectorate better. So it becomes very, very comfortable for the patient. And a lot of times they don't even notice it after a while. There are the exceptions. Yeah, no, that's great. That, you know, some people are bothered by it, but I would say that the percentage of those people is about three to 4%. Well, I wonder if athletes would use this to uh, help themselves or like if you use it every day for a few minutes, like when you were done using it, did you feel more relaxed? Did you feel just the same or how did you feel? So the, the way that I used it is, is just to test out the flow, but not necessarily to get more oxygen. There's, there's honestly no benefit to receiving more oxygen than, than what you already have. Your, your oxygen extraction capacity remains about the same. And oh, okay. there, are, there, are effects to, there are adverse effects to receiving too much oxygen. 
Well, I imagine people in the gym trying to use this when they're lifting weights and stuff. I know that's, again, it's way off pace, but I'm just wondering, that's all. What else it could be used for? <laughs> there are other utilizations for it. For example, um, they're looking for, they're looking at ways to use it for COPD, uh, especially for those patients who have underlying oxygen requirements all the time with COPD, because again, since it's heated and humidified, it'll allow these patients to be able to expectorate and be able to cough up their phlegm better than they would at baseline. Again, one of the problems with COPD is that they, they, the patients who have COPD secondary to smoking, they've basically destroyed that, that immune function of the cilia of the lungs. So they can't, they can't really bring that, bring that gunk up that you have in your chest. So this technology has been shown in some of those trials to actually decrease the amount of uh, COPD exacerbations. In other words, when the COPD acts up, um, it has decreased the amount of times that that happens and it decreases the amount of times that these patients end up in the hospital, which are great things, all things considered, because, you know, any hospitalization is just expensive as, as you already right. know. Well, very good, Eddie. At the beginning, you mentioned that you have a podcast and a bunch of activities going on. So for listeners that want to find out more, I mean, I'm enjoying listening to you. I think they are too. Where can they go? What are some of the places they can find you and your knowledge? Sure. So the primary place where I, where I post content is on Instagram. Um, my handle there is EddieJoeMD, E-D-D-Y-J-O-E-M-D. I'm also on Twitter under the same handle and on YouTube as well. The place where I have my podcast is it's titled The Saving Lives Podcast. Go figure as a critical care doctor. I had to come up with some name for it. So that, that's available on all the traditional places one will find podcasts. But I will say that the audience for my, for my content is healthcare professionals. It's really not meant for the layperson. Again, a layperson could, could go ahead and, and reach out to me or I don't give medical advice, but could re- reach out to me and, and for clarification on concepts and things of that nature. But I, I take a lot of joy in teaching people medicine, especially critical care medicine, because I feel that together, especially with how quickly information travels on social media, that we could all help each other become better clinicians, nurses, uh, pharmacists, et cetera, so that we could just do the best for, for our people, do the best for our communities, do the best for our country, do the best for the world. Well, very good, Eddie. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you. I- awesome. Well, I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.